Thanks for listening to the Crosspoint Podcast. This is the Young Adults Ministry of the Franklin Road Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Here we desire to see this generation of young adults reached and revived with the gospel of Christ. We believe our generation has the opportunity to change the world as we know it. We'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Franklin Road Baptist Church. Our prayer is that our podcast will help you grow in your relationship with God. Enjoy the Crosspoint Podcast. Philippians chapter number one. Philippians chapter number one. Here's what we're going to do tonight. Um, this is gonna, I'm going to change up the order a little bit, but we are going to give a little bit of an introduction um, to the uh, tonight's lesson. But then we are going to look at the first 11 verses of the book of Philippians. How many of you um, have ever read the book of Philippians through like in one sitting? So what I'm saying, um, like unless you had to go get a drink or something and get up, uh, we'll give you that. All right. But you've read it from beginning to end just in one sitting. Anybody in here? couple of you? Awesome. Good. I would encourage you that at some point during this study uh, to do that. I think it will take you, depending on your reading speed, 15, 25 minutes. Um, if you're not taking any notes, you can probably fly through it actually pretty quickly. But I would encourage you to do that at some point during this. This is my favorite way to teach the Bible. Um, I, I get a joy out of preaching. Um, I get, uh, I love to study, but as far as actually teaching the Bible, this is by far my favorite way to do it. And so the last six years, I believe we've gotten to take a book of the Bible and really just break it down from start, uh, from beginning all the way to ending. The reason that I like teaching this way is simply this. When we teach verse by verse and don't just pull out a story, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's the way that I teach most of the time on Sundays. But on Wednesdays, we get an opportunity to really dive into a book. The reason that I like it is because it is the way that we read the Bible. The way that we're going to teach this is the way that we read the Bible. But it is also the way that our brain thinks. When you read through a passage of Scripture, or you read through a book of the Bible, or if you even read through the Bible as a whole, most of the time you don't skip around. You don't go from one story in First Kings to uh, a book of the or to a story in Luke, and you don't always bounce all, all the way to the epistles. And so, when we do a verse by verse study, what we are doing is we are squeezing it for all that it's worth. Now, here's why I think that verse-by-verse studies is my favorite way to teach, but it is also my personal favorite way to grow and to learn the Bible, and here's why. Not only does our brain work this way and does our reading work this way, but I believe that it is the way that we can get the most out of Scripture. Let's be very transparent for just a second, okay? How many times have we read a passage of Scripture or we've read maybe even something that is familiar to us and we run to what we know rather than what we don't know, right? We, like if we read Philippians chapter number 1, we would get really excited about verse number 6, right? Because we all know that it says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a, work, a good work in you shall continue until the day. We get excited about that, right? Because, oh man, verse number 6 really helped me today. And so if someone walked up to you and said, what did you learn in your Bible? What did you read? Man, you know, I read Philippians chapter number one and verse number six just really spoke to my heart. Oh, that verse that you've had underlined since you were in kindergarten? That's great, right? So that's the way that we tend to read the Bible, okay? 
many times we don't actually sit down and say, okay, this is what I can't figure out. This is maybe a phrase that I don't understand. And the truth is, most of the time, it's not because we're evil people. Most of the time, it's because maybe we're in a hurry, or maybe we've only got a certain amount of time to sit down and read something. But when we dive into these books and these passages, my goal is to give you everything that I can in the couple of minutes that we're in here. And here's why. Because I don't think that God gave us his word to just go back to a few key verses. I believe that God gave us every single word of this Bible so that we can take it and we can learn and we can grow from it. And if we believe that every word of God is inspired, then we also should believe that every word of God is also applicable. And so we have to be able to take it and do something with it. So here's what I want to challenge you to do before we even start tonight, okay? So you say, okay, that's all great. Thank you for sharing that background. What are we supposed to do with that? Here's what I want you to do. You will get the most out of this book based off of how seriously you take it. When I teach verse by verse or we teach a book study, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to give clever illustrations. I'm not going to give a bunch of clever stories or something to maybe illustrate it. I am simply trying to teach you the Bible. So I would encourage you with this. Take good notes, okay? Ask questions. What we're going to do is I'm going to encourage you every single week to write down a question and we will address it the next week. So if you have a question about this week, if maybe you say, I don't, I, you, didn't, you didn't talk about this phrase, then I want to come back to it and talk about it next week, okay? Not because I need like a really a week to prepare, but just so we stay on topic and we stay on track with what we're trying to teach. I don't know what that weird noise was. <laughs> but, okay, so take good notes, ask questions, But then lastly, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Draw application to your own life. Draw application to your own life. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes in verse-by-verse teaching, it is so easy for me to say, well, Paul did this, and Paul thought this, and, and then this is said about this, and this is something about the church of Philippi. Sometimes you're going to have to help me out by connecting that bridge, okay? So draw application to your own life. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter number 1, verses 1 through 11 tonight in a series that we are entitling Finding Joy. Finding Joy. I will tell you that this has, I think I probably say this every summer, so just forgive me and just act like you're excited, okay? But... This has become my favorite book so far to teach. And all of you are, everybody just smiled because it's like, didn't you just say that about 1 John? Didn't you just say that about whatever we did last summer, which I can't even remember? All right, didn't you just say, so next summer we're going to do Leviticus. And guess what? I'm going to say Leviticus has become <laughs> my favorite book for to teach. There's a reason why we've stayed in the New Testament. I'm just kidding. But, um, but this, this is a very short book. It is something that I firmly believe is going to help you in your Christian life. If I didn't think that, I wouldn't teach it. And by the way, if God didn't think that, he wouldn't have put it in the Bible. So there's even that that's bigger than my opinion. Here's why I think that this will help you in your Christian life. And it is, I believe, for such a time as this. When you look at America, America as a country was founded differently. And in fact, if you study American history or if you go back to really anything that you learned in elementary or in high school, what you will find is that the way that America was founded and its positives and in its negatives 
is often what has made it attractive to the rest of the world. The truth is, is that you and I sit in this room as really a part of a social experiment that's just a little over 200 years old. And guess what? Up until probably the last mm, six months, all right, (laughs) everyone has looked at the United States of America and thought, man, that's what we want to mimic. Now, not everything, but there has been things that people have said, this is what we can take of America and put in our country, okay? One of the key phrases that many people find unique about America and about our country is found in the Declaration of Independence where it says you're entitled to or guaranteed or you have the freedom to pursue what? Life, liberty, and the, what's the last phrase? Pursuit of happiness. Isn't it funny that that phrase says that you're guaranteed life, which by the way, I think we could probably argue is not 100% true in our country anymore, that you're guaranteed liberty, which I think we could probably argue is not 100% true anymore, but there's only one time that the phrase changes when it says, and the pursuit of happiness. It's almost like the forefathers said, we'll give you life, we'll give you liberty, Good luck going and finding happiness, right? But you're welcome to it. You're you're free to go and do it. You pursue it, but good luck. Let us remind you that it is a pursuit. It's not guaranteed. And while the world around us, I believe, shows symptoms of a loss of joy and a loss of happiness, we as Christians have to understand that we have the solution. Okay? I want to be very clear on that. The rest of the world right now, truthfully, even take America out of the picture, the rest of the world right now is searching for hope. So while we cannot see the heart of the world around us, there are clearly symptoms that point to the loss of joy. The world is seeking to find their joy in their identity, their finances, their freedoms, who they are, who, the, who likes them, who doesn't like them. They're looking to find all of these things and hoping that it will bring them joy. The good news for you as a child of God is that when you begin to displace symptoms of a loss of joy, you know where the cure is. When you begin to say, man, I just don't feel joyful. I don't feel happy. I'm starting to become angry with people that I love. I'm starting to get upset. I'm starting to lose trust. I'm starting to doubt. I'm starting to feel some of these things. I'm starting to feel anxious. I'm starting to feel whatever. You as a child of God have access to the cure. But here's my fear. That while the world runs headlong seeking and pursuing happiness and joy... My fear is that most Christians will not follow too far behind. Oh yes, we have access to joy. We have access to happiness. We have access to internal peace and all the things that really everyone else is looking for. But my fear is that we have been duped and tricked into a culture that says, well, you need to do it our way. Throughout the book that lays before us, the book of Philippians, here's what you'll find. That joy can only be found on this earth in Christ Jesus. I want, to refer, I want to repeat that so that you catch it. Joy can only be found on this earth in Christ Jesus. 
Right now, it is so easy to look at our world and say, well, can you really have joy? For the Christian, the answer is an emphatic yes, right? We would all agree with that. If we took a vote, 100% of the room would say, can you have joy? Yeah, absolutely you can. But guess what? We need to follow that question up with this. Do we have joy? And here's what I want you to see is that joy on this earth can only be found in Christ Jesus. So I want to ask you a question. What could God do with a church that is marked by joy? What could God do with a class, a group of young adults, which by the way, if you look at the statistics, the people sitting in this room are not necessarily characterized by joyful personalities. What could God do with a class of young adults, not this, the people sitting in the room, the, the demographic as a whole? I needed to rephrase how I said that, all right? Everybody's like, well, sheesh, just tell us what you really think, okay? Bad wording, let's restart, all right? But what could God do with a class of young adults that was marked by joy? And here, I guess, is my prayer for us from this book. My prayer, and I, if you want to even become cliche about it, is Psalm 51-2 that's in your notes. Where, where David writes in a psalm, which by the way is a psalm of repentance, okay? Where David writes in a psalm, he says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You see, you and I as children of God and as saved people, we know where we're going. We know who's in control. We know that God is working all things for good and for His glory. And guess what? That should cause us to rejoice. As the world continues to lose joy, may we be restored in the joy of what Jesus has done for us. I know that it can be easy to dismiss this, like, who cares if I'm happy? Who cares if I'm joyful? And let me answer that question with one biblical illustration, okay? How many of you have ever heard the phrase, the joy of the Lord is my strength? Joy of my Lord. We like it, right? It's kind of one of those, like, cliche little things that you can put on the side of a mug, right? As long as it can work on Instagram, then we like it. So we say, the joy of the Lord is my strength, right? Did you know that that phrase comes from Nehemiah chapter number 8? I want you to look at it. I believe it's in your notes. Nehemiah chapter number 8, verse number 10. It says this, Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's go back to our previous our kind of introductory statement about how we're really good at taking all the stuff we don't know and really good at taking the stuff that we do know. We read that and it's, take the fat, eat the sweet, don't be sorry. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And we get to the end, it's like, yeah, right? Yeah, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't eat the fat. Oh, okay, I guess I won't have my fat then at Demas's or something, right? Off my steak. We, don't, uh, we are not good at taking the context of Scripture. So we take the one little phrase that it's like, wow, yeah, I get that. The joy of the Lord is my strength. But here's what you need to understand. When Nehemiah is saying that, the context, and if you know the book of Nehemiah, the people of God are trying to rebuild. Who was Nehemiah? Who was he? King's cupbearer. What did he do? Rebuilt the walls. They were in a rebuilding process. They were in the midst of trying to see their country be revived. And here's what I firmly believe. 
I firmly believe that just as America became attractive for how it was founded and what it possibly could offer, I want you to listen to this statement, okay? I firmly believe that moving forward in the days ahead, what will make Christianity attractive is our joy. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, guess what? You've got the freedom to try that out in America. But you know what? Most of the time that pursuit ends poorly, doesn't it? Most of the time it ends poorly for even Christians. And here's what we need to recognize as, as people of God in today's society and in today's culture that is constantly changing. Is that we serve a God who is never changing. And it is in Him that we can find our joy. And so with that in mind, I want us to look at Philippians chapter number 1, verses 1 through 11. And here's our goal for tonight. As we introduce this book, we simply want to see what joy that is found in Christ can do in our lives and the lives of others. We want to see what joy found in Christ can do in our lives and the lives of others. If we're going to make an impact in this society and in this world, it won't be because necessarily we even have all of the answers because I don't know that we do. But I do know that we serve the God who does have all the answers. And if we cannot be joyful about that, if we cannot say that the joy of what the Lord has done for me is my strength. Times are going to get hard. Things are going to get difficult. But guess what? Your joy in Jesus Christ is what will keep you going. So Philippians chapter number 1. Let's look at it. Verse number 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Verse 2. Grace be unto you. And peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I thank my God. Let me just say, I, I know that I always get really excited like week one. And then by the time we're at like week 32, it's like, okay, are we like, have we preached through all 66 books and we just said that it was one book? Like that's how it feels by the end. This is a super cool book, okay? Not the whole Bible is a super cool book, but I'm holding it up like this is a super cool book. But the book of Philippians is so cool. I want you to catch Paul's tone. We're going to talk about it in just a second, okay? So if you don't catch it, which kind of by the look of some of your faces, you're not catching it, all right? But I want you to, I want you to listen to Paul's tone. He says this, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Like, oh man, Church of Philippi, I like those guys. Man, I love those guys. I, I'm thankful that God let me cross their paths. Verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even it is, as it is meet, which by the way, that word meet is righteous, it's justice. He says, even as it is righteous, so this is a good thing. He says, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. 
that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. These first 11 verses, this, the background that we're going to cover tonight is going to be key for you to get all you can out of this, okay? I want you to listen with your heart. I want you to apply the Word of God to your life. And I want us to see, take an inward evaluation of are we marked by joy? Can we look at these passages, these verses, and see what a joyful Christian life could do for us but can also do for those around us? And could it be that God could take the joy of the people in this room and make an impact on those around us? So first of all, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the joy. I want you to see the joy. My clicker's not working. That's a good time for it not to. There it is. See the joy. Okay, this is in verses 1 and 2. Okay. Paul says this, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So you say, okay, those are just two introductory verses. Those are at the beginning of every epistle. How am I supposed to see the joy in those first two verses? First of all, let's notice this, the authors of the book. The authors of the book. This is Paul and Timothy's authorship. So you say, no, duh, that's in the first like six words of the book. Here's what you need to understand, okay? Most likely, Timothy was just along with him at this point. Most people believe historically that Timothy would have been with Paul the first time he came to Philippi. Okay, so Paul and Timothy are theoretically co-writing this, but there's a couple other epistles where Paul says who, who is along with him. So this is still an epistle of Paul. Could be that Timothy was the penman. It could have been that Timothy was just along with him. But he says Paul and Timothy are the authors. Notice, secondly, Paul's past activity with Philippi. Paul's past activity with Philippi. I want you to take your Bibles and look at Acts chapter number 17. Acts chapter number 17. It's important for us to understand how did Paul come in contact with these Christians in this church at Philippi, okay? Acts chapter number 16, we're not going to take the time to read the whole passage, but if you look at your application questions at the end of your handout, this is something that I would encourage you to read, okay? Which, by the way, if we've got some time, we'll spend some time on the application questions, but I would encourage you to maybe get with a group of people, spend some time talking about some of the stuff that we're going to talk about, do those questions. I feel like that I've gotten a little bit better at asking the right questions, so um, hopefully you can get along, alongside of someone and you can talk it out. If not, you're welcome to do them by yourself. But Acts 16, um, verse 7 through verse 40 is the story of how Paul gets to Philippi. So here's what I want you to see. In verse number 7, it says this, And after they were coming to Messiah, um, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. All right, so some context here, okay? Paul was getting ready to go somewhere else, and the Holy Spirit said, let's not go there, okay? Well, why? Let's keep reading. Verse number 8. And they, passing by Messiah, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. Well, what did the vision say? There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia 
and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. So what's in Macedonia? Let me just stop right here and say that at this point, this is the first mention of the gospel going to Macedonia. Okay? Now you have Caesarea Philippi that is mentioned in the Gospels. That is different than the Philippi that we are talking about right now. This Philippi was a part of what would be modern day Greece. Okay, so it was in. It was the really the first time the cities that we're getting ready to name is the first time that we are going to see the gospel enter into what is now pretty much modern day Europe. Okay. Every other kind of, especially some of the um, places that Paul went, was a lot in Asia. So this is now the first time we're getting ready to see it enter into, enter into what is modern day Europe. Okay, So that's Macedonia. But here's what I want you to see. God told him not to go somewhere else. God told him through a vision, through a dream, this is where you need to go. And what happened once he got there? Verse 11. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia. All right, we'll go with that. And the next day to Neapolis. And from thence to Philippi, so here's the first mention of that, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia. So this isn't a small town. This isn't something that's just like a little side street or just a little suburb. It's the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where Prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. So here's what I want you to see, okay? A little bit of historical context. When you read the book of Acts, you get a little bit of Paul's kind of methods, like how he went into a city. One of the things that you will find up until this point is that every city that he went into, he went to the synagogue, okay? And he began to teach and to preach, he would go other places. He would go to other parts of the town. Uh, and I believe it's Acts chapter number 20. He actually goes to what would have been Mars Hill, which was somewhat like going to the university, okay? But now I want you to listen to this. He doesn't go anywhere in Philippi. And here's why. Historically, there had to be 10, just 10, believing men for there to be a synagogue started in a city, Okay? That could have been Jewish nature, that could have been believed in the Old Testament, that could have been a, a variety of different beliefs about kind of God and the Bible, but there had to at least be ten. So by our records, if Paul doesn't go to a synagogue, at least from his kind of custom and methods, then chances are this is probably the first time that there's been a gospel message in that town. And so guess what he does? He says, is there anybody praying Okay? Anybody, anybody who wants any sort of religious thing, and he finds a group of women, one of them being Lydia of Thyatira, the seller of purple, who by the time we get to the end of Acts chapter number 16, he, he and the people that are with him, after they've gotten out of prison, are staying at her house. Okay, So here's what you, I'll kind of paraphrase the rest of Acts chapter number 16. By the time you go through Acts chapter number 16, a couple of key things happen. These women, many believe, begin to get saved. They begin to help Paul there in that area, and Paul does a miracle. Paul cast out a demon out of a, a young girl's uh, life. And guess what? People got mad about it. In fact, so mad that Philippi is one of the many places where Paul was beaten 
and then thrown in prison. And here's what you need to know about Philippi, all right? Let's kind of watch the plot line unfold for just a second. You've got Lydia. You've got the, the mother of the daughter who's been healed and her kind of owners or handlers, for lack of a better term, okay? Then you've got the Philippian jailer. So Philippi is the city where Paul and Silas are thrown in prison and they begin to sing and there's an earthquake, okay? And the Philippian jailer says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And guess what? He ends up being the person who helps Paul and Silas get out of prison, but there's more, okay? This is also the city where Paul said, You threw us in jail publicly, so you're going to let us out publicly. Because you know what they wanted to do? They said, oh no, these guys are Romans. We're in big trouble. We need to just get them out and get them going on. And Paul says, no, no, no. You threw us in jail publicly. You're not going to push us out in the dark of night. You're also going to get us out publicly. So now, not only has there been a relational gospel told at this point, so him going person to person, there has also been a public gospel that has been shared through the life of Paul, okay? So that's a little bit of the background. So Paul's past activity with Philippi, but then notice thirdly that Paul's apostleship is absent. Paul's apostleship is absent. So once again, we're just on verse number one right now. If you go back and you look at the epistles most of the time, not most of the time, I'll actually give you the actual numbers, okay? There is only three books where Paul in the introduction does not mention that he's an apostle. Here's why, okay? Your apostleship proved that you had authority, okay? So when Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Paul, an ordained to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, when he says that at the beginning of a letter, here's what he's saying. Y'all listen up. He's kind of like flashing his badge, like, here's the credentials, here's who I am, you need to listen, God told me to write this, so you can like it or you can lump it, because it's not from me, it's from God, because this is who I am. With Philippi, he doesn't say that. And here's why. With Philippi, his goal was not to correct them, but was to push them in the direction that they're already going. He almost plays the role of like a cheerleader or an encourager. Like, man, you guys are doing good. Keep going. Come on, this way. You guys are doing good. This way. Almost every other church that Paul has to write to, you know what he has to do is say, y'all need to wake up. I'm an apostle. I'm about to tell you what God says. You need to change course. You need to change directions. You need to get this out of your church. You need to get this sin out of your lives. But not with Philippi. With Philippi, he's simply able to say, I'm just a servant. I'm just here to kind of help you go along. I'm here to be an encouragement to you. You guys have helped me. I want to help you. So Paul's apostleship is absent. But then lastly, notice this, that Paul's Paul's current situation. Paul's current situation. Someone once called this, that Philippians is Paul's personal manifesto of Christian joy. Paul's, oh man, I'm a point ahead. What happened? Um, That's annoying. Uh, Paul's current situation, all right? So here's what you need to see. He says several times in this book, in my bonds. Someone talk to me. What would that mean? He's in jail. Thank you. I want you to let this sink in for just a second and then apply it to your heart and to your life, okay? Paul's writing a book about joy from jail. Kind of a paradox, huh? Like we spill our coffee and it's kind of like, this is the worst day I've ever had in my life, right? It's a good start to the worst day you've ever had in your life. 
That's the way we respond. That, that's human nature, right? But Paul says, I'm sitting in jail, and I'm thinking about you guys, and it's causing me to have joy. Because my joy is not based off of my situation or where I'm at. My joy is based off of what I know, off of of who I know, and the source of my joy, okay? So first of all, that's the authors. Secondly, we're going to go back here, okay? We're going to find these. That was really confusing. I was clicking for like all the sub points. That's my fault, all right? Secondly, the audience of the book. We're going to fly through this. It's the Christians and the church leaders in Philippi. Paul doesn't reference the church at Philippi, but he does reference church offices, okay? So he mentions bishops and deacons. Some of his epistles, he says, this is to the church of, and he says the city. But he doesn't reference that here. But he does mention a couple of church offices. Here's why I believe that that is occurring. There's no pastor that's mentioned, and these are young Christians and church leaders. By the time that Paul is writing this, this book is only, this church is only about 10 years old, okay? So this, this church is very young. So the, it's written to the Christians and church leaders at Philippi, but it's also written in the midst, midst of a contentious area or a contentious culture. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, where Paul actually references the, the, um, what happened at Philippi. He says, But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. So there was a contentious area, but then lastly, is there were they were Christ-like examples. So here's what I want you to kind of recall. This is the same town where Paul and Silas see a miracle happen, and then they begin to sing in prison. So if any church has a good opportunity to find joy in the midst of hard times and an example of that, it's the church of Philippi. Because they've now seen Paul and Silas singing in the Philippian prison, And now they're getting a letter from Paul in prison. And both times, it's rejoicing. It's joyful. Okay? So this church is setting the course. They're saying, this is which way we're going. We've already seen Paul do this, and now we're beginning to exhibit it. Which leads us, lastly, under this thought, to the attitude of the book. The attitude of the book. Paul is the encourager. He's the servant. He's kind of the cheerleader. Like, you guys are already doing good. Let me just encourage you. I think that if I was sitting in jail and I had to choose a church to to write something to, it would be the happy one, right? Like, oh man, I don't want to write a book to the Corinthians. Those guys are a hot mess, right? So guess what he does? Man, I I need to write a book. Let's write to the Philippians. Those guys are awesome, right? He doesn't want to write to the church that it's like, oh, there's no way I'm helping them right now. He wants to write to the people that it's like, you guys are going good. You guys are doing great. Let me just help you. Let me just run alongside you. Let me just be excited for you. Okay? So I want you to look at his love for this church, but then I want you to also see that during this, he is sitting in chains as he thinks about this church. We don't know whether he was the actual person to pen this, but can you imagine with every stroke of the pen hearing a chain rattle? Writing a verse like Philippians 4.4 that says, Rejoice in the Lord always, that we have turned into a cheesy song. It was written in jail. 
And we're like, rejoice in the Lord. And it's like, that was in prison. And with everything that he wrote, he had to listen to clink, clink. That's amazing. That, that, that is God. Okay, let's just be honest. It's not even amazing. That is God. Wouldn't it be life-changing if you and I could experience that same joy? So here's what I want you to kind of take away. I know I gave you a lot of background. And we'll fly through the last part of this. But here's, what I, here's kind of the takeaway of this. Okay? The joyful Christian life is a premium and perfect environment for spiritual growth. The joyful Christian life is a perfect environment for spiritual growth. Let's walk through one more time and just review this history, okay? This, there's nothing religious happening in Philippi. And then Paul shows up, and some people get saved, and a miracle happens. But hard times come, but Paul's joyful anyways, okay? Now, then they see a miracle happen that gets them out of jail. And then they see this public announcement like, we're sorry we threw Paul in prison. He's now, Paul and Silas are now released to go about their way. Like, blah, blah, whatever. It's this big public announcement. Now the whole city's like, well, who's this Paul guy? Why was he thrown in jail? What's he have to say? You see the growth that's happening? And by the time we get to this book, just 10, 11, maybe nine years after all of that happened, Paul's looking at them and he's saying, yes you guys got it man you got it going on let's just let's just keep going i'm not going to fix anything i'm not going to correct anything let's just go take the reins off and let's grow together you guys have already taken the joy thing man what's next for you what's god going to do through you because if we can't figure out joy then I doubt we'll ever figure anything else out in the Christian life. And that's exactly what he saw in them. He said, you guys have got joy figured out. So this is what's coming up next, which leads us to this thought. Let's see what joy produces. Let's see what joy produces. This is found in verses 3 through 8. I'm going to go ahead and break it down for you. I'll try to give you the verse as we go along. But first of all, your joy produces thankfulness. Your joy produces thankfulness. Verse number 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Let me just ask you a very challenging question that I have written in my, in my Bible. When someone thinks of your Christian faith, does it bring joy to them or grief? Does it bring excitement and happiness? Man, praise the Lord. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Whenever I think about you, I'm proud of you. Could that be said about your Christian life? Secondly, your joy produces prayer. Your joy produces prayer. He says this in verse number four, always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. Which, by the way, isn't it easy to pray for joyful people? Look at your prayer list right now. It's easy to pray for the people that it's like, you know what? They are going through a tough time, but look at how good God is through them. I'm going to pray for them. It's easy to pray for joyful people. So your joy is produced through prayer. Your joy produces fellowship. Verse number five, he says, For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. I can almost see Paul getting a little bit sentimental as he writes this. Can't you? Like, 
I'm not an apostle to these people. I'm just a servant. I'm so thankful for them. I'm going to pray for them. And and he says, I've enjoyed getting to spend time with you. I, I enjoyed, since day one, you guys have been special. Your joy produces fellowship. Your joy produces confidence. In in verse number 6, he says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I think it's interesting that that's in the book that's about joy, right? Once again, not to beat up on the Corinthians, but he didn't write that to the Corinthians. Like, you guys are getting drunk at Lord's Supper, but I'm confident God's still at work, right? He didn't write that to them. He wrote it to the happy ones. Like, man, God's already working. You just keep going. I'm confident about that. Uh, verse number seven, your joy produces love. He says this, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. He doesn't talk this way to any other church. He says, I have you in my heart. He's getting mushy on them. He's telling them how much he loves them because they are doing and living the Christian life the way it was meant to be lived. And then lastly, your joy produces longing. He says in verse number 8, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. He says, I have got to get to see you. Here's what I want you to see, okay? Here's the application for this, this kind of portion. Your joy is intended to produce something in someone else. And many times, okay, I want you to listen to this. Many times we base our joy off of what it does for us. Why are we motivated to have joy? Well, because I'll be happy. That's not the point of Christian joy. That's a selfish perspective of Christian joy. What if Jesus himself would have, done, would have practiced joy that way? No, you see, Jesus was joyful because of what he knew he was doing for you. And I want to just go ahead and maybe shake your foundation and rock your world for just a second, okay? If you are here in this room and you answered the question, you say, I'm not really a joyful person. It could be that you have focused too much on giving, bringing yourself joy rather than bringing joy to those around you. And the way that the church and Christianity is supposed to work is that my joy is supposed to lift you up and your joy is supposed to lift me up. But unfortunately, most of the time, there's one or two joyful people and they're constantly trying to go around like, hey man, we got this. Everything's good. All right, let's go to this. Oh, hey, hey, you're going to make it. I promise God's good. He's in control. Let's keep moving forward. And the truth is, is the Christian life is supposed to be, hey, we've got this. God's good. Can you imagine being at handshaking time pre-coronavirus at the Church of Philippi? Like, oh, I love that guy. Yeah, yeah, y'all, man. Did you have a good week? Oh, yeah, dude, I had a great week. Man, this was this happened, this happened. Man, I just, oh, did you grow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was reading this. I did. I, it was exciting. It was joyful. And so guess what? That person who was kind of like, man, that was great. That was exciting to hear. I'm going to go be an encouragement to this person. They were moving forward because it was joyful. 
and their joy produced something in each other. The same way that when Paul looked at this church, he was like, you guys are doing it. You guys are moving forward. You're growing. Let me encourage you. So joy is intended to produce something in others more than it is intended to produce something in yourself. And if you are constantly searching for what is going to make you joyful and what makes you happy, you will miss Christian joy. You will. Because your joy is found in serving others and being an encouragement to them. And Lord willing, if you're in a prime spot for Christian growth, that will help someone else be joyful. Which leads us to this last thought, and that is this. Not only to see what joy produces, but let's see what joy prays. So here's what I want you to see. These last two, three verses that we'll talk about is really what he says is next. If you can almost see the Christian life like this, he says, you guys have got the foundation. You've got it figured out. You're doing the Christian life the way that it's supposed to be done. But here's what I'm praying happens next. Let's look at it. First of all, he says this, Joy prays that you will grow in love more. Look at verse number 9. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Which, by the way, let me just say this. He didn't say, I pray that you become more loving or that you become loving. No, he says, you guys are already loving because you're joyful. So I'm going to pray that, guess what? It grows. I'm praying that it gets better. I'm praying that you become more loving. Because you've already got joy figured out, so love is the byproduct of joy. It's easy to love when you're happy about it, right? You probably wouldn't take someone seriously if they're like, God loves you. Does he? Because it didn't sound like he did. Because joy was already there, love was there, and he prayed that they would grow in love more. Secondly, joy prays that you will discern what is excellent. He says, I want your love to grow, but I also want you to be able to determine and figure out what is excellent. It's interesting to me that he uses the term excellent. He says, I want you to be able to figure out what's good in your life. No, he says excellent. And I can't tell you how many times I've said this in this class, but I think it bears repeating over and over again because it's that important, that Satan many times does not want to trip you up over, over bad things. Many times he wants to trip you up over good things that are not God things. And that is exactly what Paul was telling this church. He says, I want you to find what is best for you. I want you to get the best and the most excellent things out of this life. But then thirdly is not only does he pray that their love will grow and that, uh, that they will discern what is excellent, but he prays that they will become real and unoffensive. Look at verse number, uh, sorry, verse number 10. He says that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. I think you can kind of take the without offense two different ways. I think you can take it in a sin way in that he wants them to become pure and he wants them to be holy. But I also think that you can take it in a way to where he wants them to not be offensive to maybe those around them. Now let me just say this. 
The gospel is offensive. Truth is going to be offensive. But how we portray it does not have to be. And he says, I want you to become sincere. I want you to become real. When you look at someone and you tell them that God loves you and that you're happy about it, that should come from your heart, not just because you know it in your head. So you should become real and unoffensive. But then lastly, he prays that they will bear fruit for Christ. Look at verse number 11. He says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. There's a lot in that verse, but here's what I want you to see. He says that you should bear fruit. It should be righteous fruit. It's found in Jesus Christ, and it's for God's praise and glory and not yours. Sometimes I think, I'll say this about this last verse and then we'll conclude. Sometimes I think we're really good at bearing fruit when we think we get the glory, aren't we? When we get a medal for being the most spiritual in high school, we'll be spiritual. When, when all of a sudden we get to get the pat on the back from mom and dad because we obeyed and it was like, man, mom and dad, I am the epitome of Ephesians 6.1. Like I'm obeying my parents, look at me, right? As long as there's a sticker chart, we're all in, right? But once we become adults and now all of a sudden God's getting the praise and glory, it's kind of like, eh, is it that important? Let me just remind you that if you can't figure out joy, you're going to have a hard time figuring out fruit. If you can't figure out joy, you're going to have a hard time being unoffensive to those around you when you tell them the truth. If you can't figure out joy, and I want you to listen to this, you are going to have a hard time finding God's will for your life. Because joy is natural. Joy is a trademark of walking with Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you to see as we conclude. Is that our joy in good times and in bad times could very well be the difference maker for somebody around us lost and saved. I want you to think for just a moment about if persecution hits the modern day American church. Think about it. How many people in this room would make it? Not make it out alive, that's not what I'm saying. How many people in this room would care enough to say, I'm going to put my life on the line for Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, I don't think that's really a, a decision you make like right now in, in this moment. But I think it's one that this generation needs to come to grips with. What happens when someone looks at you and says, we're firing you because of what you believe? Now, by the way, I don't expect you to walk out the doors and do like a Willy Wonka hill clip at the end, okay? But guess what? Are you still going to think that God's in control? What happens the first time you walk on a college campus and someone laughs at you and says, which by the way, some of you have 
experienced. Someone says, you believe that? Is that going to rob you of your joy? Or are you going to say, no, I, I do believe that because I know what it's done in my heart and in my life. And here's what, I, I, I don't know. I, as I dove into this book, here's what I firmly believe that God has for us for the next couple of weeks. Is I think that God just says, I want you guys to get it figured out. Next time you sit in church, look around you. Look at the faces of people around you. As we sing, all hail the mighty power of Jesus' name. I'm not going to sing it because that would be awful. And I'm on a microphone, okay? Sorry, podcast people, okay? Look at people's faces. Do we actually believe that God is powerful? On Sunday, we sang wonderful, merciful Savior. Oh, you mean the merciful Savior who's not going to send me to hell? Yeah. That's all right, I guess. And if you could have been in this church of Philippi, here's what I think that you would have experienced when you walked in. I think you would have experienced the Christian life the way it was meant to be done. I firmly believe that. I've read this book, I don't know how many times getting ready for this. I've studied background material on it. I've listened to sermons. And you know what is the resounding thing that I see? This church had it figured out. These Christians had it figured out. How would you have liked to have been Lydia of Thyatira, who, based off of her occupation, let's think about this for just a second, she was a seller of purple. Poor people don't buy purple in those days, okay? So she's kind of like the, she's like the fashion guru of Philippi, okay? She's the big wig. She, she's got a Pinterest account with a bunch of followers, okay? She's got an Etsy shop. She's got a boutique in downtown Philippi. And that's where people go to get cool stuff. I, I don't know what you do at a boutique, okay? How would you like to be Lydia and walk into that church every single Sunday and think, I would... I was the first person in this area to pray with Paul. I was a part of the church planning team for the church at Philippi. And look at what it's done. Philippi is one of the few churches that Paul writes to that we have historical evidence that the church not only lasted longer than the city, but it had a huge impact in that town. And here's why I believe that. I believe that it was real. I believe that the reason that they didn't experience the persecution that maybe other churches did, we've talked about Ephesus in here with the Temple of Diana, we've talked about Colossae, we've talked about uh, the Church of Ephesus when we covered the book of John, First John, We've talked about a lot of, I think the reason that Philippi didn't experience the persecution of maybe the other churches is because there was some people that were standing around and saying, we can't persecute this. This, this thing's real. This is different than any other belief system we've seen. And so what are we supposed to say about that? 
How are we supposed to persecute people who actually believe it and are joyful about it? It's like giving a kid a spanking and them laughing about it. Like, are you serious? It just makes you want to spank them more, right? You guys don't have kids, so I don't know why I'm giving that illustration, all right? <laughs> but Paul says, you guys are already headed in the right direction. Here's what's next. So here's what I want to close with. So I want to just close with a simple prayer and a couple of questions. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, we'll pray and we'll be done. Holy cow, is church out? Sorry. I'm done for 8.15. Okay. Maybe. We'll see how long this prayer lasts. I want to ask you just a couple of questions and then we'll be done. Okay. These are between you and God. Okay. Don't have to raise your hand. I would ask that you maybe not take a nap when you bow your head though. Okay. Listen to these questions. First of all, do you believe that you can have joy on this earth in Jesus Christ? Do you actually believe that you can have joy in this earth on, or on this earth in Jesus Christ? Which, by the way, looking at the people in the room, I would say that we all probably answered yes to that. But let me ask you the second question. Do you? Or have you let maybe certain excuses in your life, well, I've got this going on, or, or maybe I don't have the perfect home life, or maybe something else is, uh, maybe school is hard, or work is stressful, or, or no one knows what I'm going through, which by the way, those are all very valid excuses. But they're also excuses that the Apostle Paul could have given. Well, I don't have to have joy because I'm in jail. I don't have to have joy because I got beat up. I don't have to have joy because I've been shipwrecked. So do you have joy? But then the next question that I want to ask you is, do, are you growing? Has your joy affected your spiritual growth? And then next is I want you to consider, why do you want to be joyful? Is it selfish reasons or is it unselfish reasons? And could it be that the reason that you couldn't say yes to being a joyful person is because you've become focused on bringing yourself joy rather than those around you? And the last question is this. What's next for you? If Paul was standing here today and he said, you know what, so-and-so, you've got joy figured out, Here's what's next. Here's what I want you to do now. And if we can't get joy, then I very seriously doubt that we can get anything else figured out. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, let's pray. Let's ask God. Thanks for listening. If this lesson is helpful to you, feel free to share it with someone else or let us know by emailing us at crosspoint at franklinroad.org. You can also check us out at frbc underscore crosspoint on Instagram and Twitter. We look forward to connecting with you again soon.